Alchemy Radio, where our only demand is that you keep an open mind. Thank you for tuning in, and hopefully you enjoy the show and variety of eye-opening guests we bring to you on a regular basis. We're about to undergo a number of exciting changes at Alchemy, as I mentioned last week, including increasing our output to air weekly. We're currently free, completely non-profit, and available on demand from www.alchemyradio.net and iTunes, and our listenership is increasing daily. However, as the show rapidly increases in popularity, so do costs, most specifically hosting and bandwidth costs, and it's becoming more and more expensive to prepare, produce and host the show, so your help is needed. We rely on donations to keep the show in its current free and advertising-free format, and indeed are extremely grateful for any help you can offer. We put no fixed cost on your donations and every little help, so for example, if you could spare even the price of a cup of coffee every month, this would go a long way towards keeping us afloat. Our donate button is on the website and your support and assistance is hugely appreciated. Also, check out our new Twitter account, www.twitter.com forward slash alchemy radio. Get following and interacting with us and all your feedback, guest suggestions and other input is extremely welcome. So, on to the show. Our guest today is Neil Kramer. Neil is a British philosopher and teacher specialising in the fields of consciousness, metaphysics and mysticism. Neil has made a lifelong independent study of philosophy, mystical traditions, religion and esoteric world history. He shares his path of transformation and empowerment in writings, recordings, interviews and lectures, as well as giving personal consultations and group workshops. He's a frequent guest on leading alternative radio and internet shows, enjoying international audiences and enthusiastic support. His work regularly appears on cutting-edge media portals and is featured on television networks in the US, UK, Canada and Europe. Neil speaks on many fascinating subjects and is renowned for his unique blend of lucidity, empowerment and authenticity. He divides his time between Oregon, Washington and New York. And Neil's latest book, The Unfoldment, is in bookstores now. Neil, you're very welcome to Alchemy Radio. How are you? Very good, John. Very good indeed. Thanks for uh, inviting me on your show. Well, it's a great pleasure. We had one or two false starts and it's great to uh, to finally have found a mutual time because I've been... I, I read your book, The Unfoldment, about a year ago and I've reread it and reread it and reread it and it's one of my favourite books, I would say, of all time. And we're not just going to talk about your book, but a huge amount of what we will speak about will be pertaining to your book and the knowledge contained therein. But before we get into that, Neil... Let's just, uh, t- for, for, for those of the listeners who might not have read the book or who might not know of you at all, tell us how you got from where you were in, I suppose, a spiritual or an esoteric sense to where you are now. Well, um, like everybody else, I was in the normal mainstream world doing things and earning a living and working in uh, a regular mainstream job in the, in the software industry, but I'd always um, maintained a, a passion and a fascination for philosophy and mysticism, uh, the occult, for esoteric world history and all these kind of wonderful things. And uh, gradually, in my pursuit of those things and in my study of them, I realized that uh, there there was a a renewed interest in those subject matters because the 
explanations and descriptions of what the world is and how it works and why are things wrong and why do bad things happen to good people? You know, all those kind of classic questions weren't sufficiently being answered in the mainstream. Religion wasn't doing it. Science wasn't doing it. The government weren't doing it. So for really since my teenage years, I've spent as much time as possible um, living as a philosopher. Now, that's a very strange way to earn a living because unless you go to a university and uh, cloister yourself in academia and, you know, essentially being a scholar within that paradigm, Mm -hmm. living as a philosopher, you might as well live as a tramp because it's the same thing, really. (laughs) You wander around a lot, you have no money, (laughs) and you contemplate the universe, right? So it's a very... Um, classical, strange, or I would say shamanic path, really. Um, but I, I have, you know, strove to make that a reality. And fortunately, as the years have gone by, more and more people have demonstrated that it's something they want in their life. And so I write books about this. I do presentations. I give workshops. I'm doing one in a couple of weeks. And I consult. I am a consulting philosopher, so people will engage me to discuss uh, crossroads in their lives, uh, big questions they have, issues, challenges, dilemmas, but not as a counsellor, not as um, you know, a shrink or a psychiatrist, although mm. there's always issues like that, but as someone who is a, a metaphysician, somebody who's looking at the roots of life, not just the symptoms of things and the the flowers on the end of the trees, but actually the roots of the thing. And more and more people are unsatisfied with normal culture, normal music, normal art, normal television, normal movies. They're not satisfied with it. They're looking for something deeper. And philosophy is at the very heart of human culture. So I'm just really promoting it back front and centre again. Fascinating. And it must have been a huge change for you because if you were entrenched in the mainstream, if you like, to go from that to, uh, to the Trump-like, um, Trump-like existence, to use your term, <laughs> must have been a pretty major shock to the system. Yeah, it is because um, you, you consider the shift from uh, having a very comfortable uh, job with a great salary and car and house and all the nice bits and pieces that go with it. Mm. And I, I sort of knew that if I pursued that path, I would, you know, it would gradually get a bit better and I'd have more stuff and more time. But in my own personal case, and this is for everybody to decide for themselves, but for my, in my own personal case, I realized that one of the central cons of the mainstream paradigm is to... Um, postpone life until later. So the idea is that you start actually doing stuff with freedom when you're 60, 65, 70. Yeah, yeah. And I I, I wasn't satisfied with that. I thought that's, I don't think that's right. In fact, I think it's against human nature. I think it opposes natural human discovery, which is, is one of the most exciting and important things we have on this planet, discovery. And discovery is squashed and suppressed in the mainstream world. It's, not, it's something that you're told not to do. Mm. And in fact, the, the faster you get that out of your head, 
the more successful you'll be. Now, it's slightly different for a, a guy such as yourself who has made his music and his art a part of his life and part of his job. So if you've managed to pull that off, well done. That is awesome. That is you know, really something. But you know as well as I do that 95% of the guys and girls we see out there are doing things every day that they don't want to do. Absolutely. And I think that is unnecessary and unnatural. I couldn't agree more. And I must say, even, even though I am lucky enough to have a job that, uh, or a hobby that pays a living, <laughs> even within that, there are constraints. And I suppose the higher up the ladder you get, the more obvious they become. And the music industry is just a hotbed of restriction and um, <laughs> occult happenings. And it, it's just amazing <laughs> as I've progressed in, in that regard the amount of stuff I've seen and how, how open my eyes have become to it all. And it's one of the reasons I started Alchemy Radio in the first place was because I noticed that there was a crossover between a lot of the the knowledge that I was thirsting for and I suppose I was bringing it into my radio shows and into my music and that kind of thing. And I thought, hang on a minute, I need, I need a more viable outlet for this. I need to do something. And that's why I started with Alchemy Radio. And I've since figured out a couple of different ways of merging the two to a far more satisfying degree for me. But I totally take on board the point you're making. 95% of people are in jobs or they're doing things or engaged with things that they don't want to be doing. And that just can't be right. I mean, no matter how much money somebody has or how many things that they acquire, I really don't feel that anybody can be spiritually or deep down or subconsciously satisfied by that. No. Well, I would say that um, the, one of the key reasons of being in this incredible spiritual assault course, this survival training, this, this spiritual SAS training ground that is life on earth, one of the big things about it is growth, is growing to be a better man, a better woman, and refining yourself, making your intellect sharper, making your conduct better, having more integrity, having more personal power uh, in, in the good sense of that word, word like an oak tree or a, 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 you know, a tiger, to have this power inside you um, that transcends your normal form and becomes something very multidimensional. Sort of like, I often say, like Bruce Lee, you know, this little guy transcends his normal uh, musculature and transcends his normal ability of uh, pounds per square inch by learning an esoteric art of how to move in a different way. Mm. And by so doing, Bruce Lee showed us that uh, power is something that flows around us all the time and it's something that we can harness. And the kind of power that he was uh, harnessing, chi is no different to the power that I often discuss with the people that I work with and on my journeys, which is another kind of power of, of consciousness. And it's essentially the same thing. It's just at a different frequency, you might say, a different oscillation. Mm. Um, and it's this enormous energy that moves through the universe. And my view on it is that consciousness isn't something that we generate in our minds. It's something we channel through our minds. So consciousness flows with or without us, and it is constantly articulating itself through everything, all the things that contribute to that field of consciousness, the plants, the trees, the rocks, the animals, the sky, the clouds, the humans, 
the non-humans, you know, all these different crazy orders of natural life contribute to this dimension of consciousness, to this non-local field of consciousness. Mm. And I have found that the only obstacle to having very great and deep and clear, powerful consciousness is misconceptions in our mind, is thinking in a wrong manner. And, and culture, in that respect, and I don't mean the nice, juicy, organic human culture, yeah. I mean the culture that is put to us by Warner Brothers and Sony and Samsung and Apple, uh, a corporate culture where the movies and the music and the books and the fashions and the objects and the clothes are given to you to say, this is what people are doing, you do it. When we engage with that culture, we misconceive the world around us. And instead of living in this enormous, exciting, Tolkien-esque universe, which is the true universe, we live instead in this very grey nuts and bolts world that is a sort of very pale shadow of the real thing. And we only ever glimpse that when we're working, you know, um, 40, 50 hours a week doing something that we don't want to do. Yeah. Because your energy is at such a low level that you haven't got the clarity and the uh, focus to actually perceive your own situation. You lose perspective on it. So we end up as like these drone workers. You know, you've either got a suit on or you've got overalls on. You're either in the office or you're under somebody's kitchen sink. And those are the two options in life. Yeah. Do, do one or the other, and that's it. And, and one of the foundational things that I put forward uh, in my work is that the opportunities that we generate in our life for resources and how we spend our time and where we live and who we spend our time with, you know, the things that define the quality of our life and the happiness of our life, those things are entirely a reflection of your state of mind. So if you can change the way you think, you can change your outside circumstances, not in some distant, slow, cause and effect way, but in a very immediate, magical way. Mm. So my proposition to people is that the external world is a very, very literal mirror of what's going on inside your head. And as such, your life itself can be used as the instrument for your own transformation, which means initially you're going to have to accept that a lot of the difficult, rubbish, irksome things in your life are a reflection of you. They're not outside adversaries trying to do you harm or bring you misfortune. It's you tripping yourself up, tying your own shoelaces together. So there's a brutal honesty required for my work which means, you know, accepting your own vulnerabilities, essentially. But once you do that, you can then begin to paint a very different picture and a very different life, which is much, much more fulfilling and true and full of discovery and adventure, which are two things, as I said before, that normally the mainstream machine culture, as I call it, mm. tries to extract from life. Because if they take your adventure out of you, and they take your discovery out of you, then you'll do what you're told. But when we have those inside us, we become very 
anti-authoritarian, very sovereign, very, very independent, very strong, very powerful, creators of our own destiny. So I think I know which path I prefer. (laughs) I I think I'd uh, probably subscribe to your path as well. Mm. But it's very, very interesting what you say, because it kind of evokes this imagery in my mind as you speak of a baby. And when a baby is born, energy flows through them and they know what to do. They don't speak a language, um, but but they instinctively know what to do. And it's almost like the culture that you speak of, or society, or the control system, whatever term people want to put on it, it makes the baby almost forget. It teaches it a new language, a new language that doesn't allow the baby access to the keys to the universe or to the self or whatever it might be. And they, they forget what they were born with. And it's almost like a re- reminds me of a relearning process or a relearning of a language, in a sense, when you're speaking, Neil. Was that what it was like for you? Or is that the sense that you get from people when they go through this journey with you? It is, yeah. Um, one of the things that happens when you get into the deep... Uh, things of the world and the true things of the world is that you start to use a different kind of language, you start to use different words, uh, different terminology and lingo and you start to structure your sentences in a different way Mm. and your vocabulary naturally enriches because you know like when you're at school, if you went to like a normal high school like I did, if if you vocabulary was too flowery you get beat up because people thought you were trying to be clever you know yeah absolutely (laughs) I can relate to it (laughs) yeah yeah so you had to like you know fit in and use the common tongue as it were Mm. and as as you progress in this you realize that you know that's kind of funny and that's what kids do but actually that's a reflection of cultural um, engineering It's it's an effect of social manipulation which is don't enrich yourself beyond your station don't put yourself beyond your working class or middle class roots. Know what you are and just essentially repeat what your family have done for generations. That's the message. So what's radical about this is changing your language changes your life, right? And again, I'm not speaking metaphoric- metaphorically there or figuratively. Right. I mean, I mean that literally because language is what we use to construct life, human life, at a very foundational level. And there is an argument to say that the building blocks of life itself um, are based in information. It's not molecular. It's not some funny little balls that stick together and we put them in a certain way and that's hydrogen and that's carbon and that's, this is this mineral and this is this chemical. Yeah. No, it's actually information. And that information is sculpted by language. So if you can communicate well and you can write and read well, you can think well and your thoughts shape the world around you. So you try thinking of something just quietly in your own head without using language, right? And see how far you get. You won't be able to do it. Yeah. You can you can recall a feeling, you can recall an emotion, but to think of something in our heads Typically, we use language. So owning your language is owning your own ability to articulate and think about the world and recreate the world and re-engineer it, redesign it. If your language is given to you by David Cameron or Barack Obama or Angela Merkel or whoever, you know, Francois Hollande or whatever, um, you're going to struggle 
because that language that comes down through the institutions of government and control is designed to to set you up as a worker and the the reward for the worker is currency is the ability to exchange currency mm. for luxury goods that's the only reason people work pay the bills and get some luxury goods which may provide some respite and relief and a little bit of pleasure now and again but as for the discovery and the growth where is it there isn't any so language is radical and that's why it's the, there's such a determined effort by the corporations to grasp the internet and have Facebook and Twitter and Google and whatnot as the main portals for the internet. Because when you do that, your language is being manipulated. Yeah. And that's, that's inorganic. It's unnatural. And it disempowers us. So... Um, even using this vast, you know, global library of the internet, if you don't think about it, um, the the sort of index cards, if you like, the the the, the categorization of what's in that library, is provided for you by Google and Facebook and the likes, uh, and everyone else, you know, Twitter and stumble upon and everything. If that's your only reference point, again, you collapse down this fantastic spectrum of excellence, which is all human knowledge, into very small categories of, of essentially uh, corporate culture. Mm. So language couldn't be more important to, to take hold of and to start to use. You know, the way you like it, the way you want to do it for yourself, not as some bizarre academic or scholar, you know, do that if you want, but just to have the words to put around something to propose an idea to yourself or to your best friend or to think about what you've seen or to describe what's wrong with your community or your society and to envision how it could be better. You need language for that. You need it. And if, you, if we don't have it, what tends to happen is we uh, gravitate to those who do have it and the television tries to convince you that the people who have it best are the privileged, educated politicians. Yeah. And that's not true. That is not true. Well, it's absolutely not true. And I think that leads us on to um, authenticity because while somebody might speak in the floweriest language imaginable or people may perceive them to do so, i.e. politicians or news re readers or whoever else it might be, that's really not the case because there's nothing authentic behind the words that they're saying. <laughs> so they are merely talking heads. And I think the, the key to it all, for, well, certainly for me personally, as I lead my life, it's to, it's to strive for authenticity and to be as true to myself and, and my, my gut feeling as possible. And I think television and the talking heads that we're speaking about distracts from that immensely. They do. Authenticity is becoming more and more of a buzzword, which is kind of funny, um, uh, but good as well, because um, it, it asks the individual to consider what do we mean when we say authenticity. And I would say that authenticity is what is aligned with your true nature yeah. and your true growth, right? So in the same way, if you were a, a tree, it would be authentic uh, for you to seek out sunlight and space and nutrition and it would be inauthentic for you to have chemicals around you and pesticides 
or to have uh, nails driven into your trunk or whatever. So very simply speaking, authenticity is what is natural, what flows, what is aligned with your core being, your inner truth, yeah, mm. that we all have a sense of. And some people have a very vague sense of that, which is fine. It's still the same thing. Some people have a very clear idea and perception of it, which is also fine. It's still the same thing. We just get clearer about it. But once you start to have this authentic impulse, uh, it changes your life because it, it changes what, you, what satisfies you and what is acceptable in a very healthy, good way. So things that used to be okay, uh, friends that used to be okay, pastimes that used to be okay, workplaces that used to be okay. When you bring your authenticity really online, that changes and you become much more selective and determined to choose uh, engagements in life, whatever they're with, people and things and situations that reflect who you are and what you're doing. And the, the magical aspect of this, to use that word, the exciting aspect of this, is that the universe as a whole, let's say our, our world out there, is also trying to do the same thing. It is also growing. And even whether we're Catholics or, you know, Presbyterians or Muslims or whatever, um, we tend to see creation, if we think of it in a divine context, as a completed product. Mm. Uh, it isn't, in my view, and in my esoteric study over the last 20 years, it isn't. It's a work in progress. So the creation, this enormous, beautiful world that we live in, full of terror and extraordinary beauty, all mixed up together, very fascinating. This world is a work in progress, and it is doing the same thing that we're doing. It has a perfection of sorts, and it has, has a definite beauty in its natural construction, but it's trying to refine itself all the time. Mm. And when it sees us doing that, it starts to recognize us, and it starts to help us. So when the universe knows that you are bringing your authentic impulse online, and you're trying to live as a better man, and you're trying to uh, flow greater consciousness to know the truth about things, to know the truth about 9-11, about government, about earth history, about extraterrestrials, about your own heart, your relationship with your parents, about what you want, about your emotional maturity, about your intellectual education, all those wonderful things that shape our lives. When the universe sees that you're taking that seriously, it recognizes you, it acknowledges you, and it starts to assist you, and it starts to essentially throw you synchronicities, lucky breaks, mm. happy coincidences, if you like, um, and it, it aids your path by saying, this is the book you need to read next. This is the person you need to read. This is the woman you're going to fall in love with. This is a journey that you're going to go on. And I will provide these things for you. So the universe's provision, its ability to give us the things that uh, we need, is rapidly accelerated in accordance with how authentic you are in your life.
And it's amazing because one, when I was growing up, one phrase that I never understood was, you make your own luck. And over the last, I suppose, five or ten years, it's something that has made more and more sense to me. And it's totally in line with what you've just been talking about, Neil, because if we can get ourselves in line with our own truth, our own authenticity, yeah. well, then the luck comes to us. It's provided by the universe or whatever term people want to put on it. Some people call it God or whatever they want to call it. It's provided for us. And I've noticed that in my own life as things have gone on, be it be it career related or to do with personal relationships or anything like that. Um, it, it's been fascinating to observe. And it's also been difficult at times because one thing from my own personal experience, and maybe you can shed some light on this with regard to your own, is that it becomes extremely hard to relate to people. I think you touched on it, <laughs> to relate to people who you would have always got on extremely well with or been really good friends. There's, there's almost like a drift from one peer group to another or you're searching for another because things have just changed and what's important to or what was important to you is no longer important. And there's just this, this, this schism almost in your life, which I think is reflected throughout humanity. And is that something that you'd see repeated, yeah? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, that, is, that is one of the great gifts of the spiritual journey in that um, the truth of situations are increasingly revealed to you. The truth becomes this transparent um, entity, this uh, phenomena that is throughout your life. And sometimes, you know, it's a wonderful thing. And you go, ah, right, now I'm finally starting to grasp the, the truth, you know, the real virtue of a, of a situation or a, an event or something. But when it comes to people, and interpersonal relationships, it can be very challenging because, as you say, it essentially means that some things that used to be okay are not anymore. And there's a, there's a funny scene in the uh, Lord of the Rings book. So it's on my mind recently, this, because I just watched one of the movies the other day. But, um, you know, these, these four hobbits, um, uh, what's his name? Sam and, you know, Merry and Pippin and, and, mm. and all the rest of them and Frodo, they used to go to this pub, didn't they, um, uh, locally in the village. And they'd go there and have a great time and they'd drink beer and they'd sing and dance and it was wonderful and it was the highlight of the week, really. And they did this for years and years and years and go to this place and see all the friends and talk to everybody. And it was, it was wonderful. It was wonderful. It was just a fantastic way to spend an evening. Yeah. And then... Obviously, they go on this epic quest through this land of Middle-earth based on England and uh, Switzerland and uh, Scandinavia. And they go through these enormous revelations of life and death situations. They see magic. They see other beings, other lands, other cultures. They see what is untrue and they see what is true. And it changes them. It shapes them. It, it creates a new vessel for their consciousness. And there's a scene in the book and in the movie where years later, after all these adventures that they have and all these great, vast spiritual growth, they come back and they go to that same pub and they just sort of sat there with the little tankards of beer, yeah. just looking at each other across the table thinking, this isn't enough anymore. This isn't fun anymore. It's okay. We love these guys. This is all right. There's nothing, no judgment, no snobbery, no, there's nothing like that. But it doesn't provide what it used to because 
their consciousness has radically changed. So they all they just walk out and they leave, and indeed, you know, uh, go on to other things. Some of them, and it's rather like that in that it is an adventure, being uh, met a metaphysical person, being having a mystical impulse to investigate the world, having a philosophical perspective. It changes who you are at a very primary level to the extent that when you look back, say, a few years ago at yourself, you're looking back really at a distant cousin. It's not really you anymore. Mm, And although we can relate to that person, the experiences that they had and the events that occurred around them uh, no longer touch you in the same way because that consciousness is is radically different. I said to somebody recently, you know, um, they, they'd gone to a school reunion back in, back, I'm, I live in the States now, but back in England, and they said, oh yeah, I went back to this uh, high school, it used to be a grammar school in Manchester, and they went there, and there's all these people, and, you know, they, he said, I was talking to this person, and they was like, oh yeah, you know, we saw, whatever, Dave the other day, and he hadn't changed a bit. It was exactly the same, physically the same. He liked the same music. He did the same stuff. He like still liked. It was football twice a week. He did this. He did that. Everything was exactly the same. How lovely! And my friend said, "You know what? An enormous disaster that is." Yeah. <laughs> to say that forty years later, the guy hadn't evolved. He hadn't changed. There was no transformation, no revelations, no epiphanies, no spiritual enrichment, no discovery. I mean, he was a lovely guy. Don't get me wrong, a lovely guy. Nothing yeah. wrong with him at all. But there had been no change. And that's what happens when you don't think. If you don't think, you don't propose new realities, then you will assume the default pattern, which is what your parents did and what their parents did and what the people in your community do. That's what you'll do as well. And your life on paper, if you had a little Wikipedia entry for yourself, would look rather the same as everybody else's. So I I don't think that's a very interesting art project. It's like, here's a paintbrush and we're just copying someone else. Wouldn't it be more fun to invent your own art, your own styles, your own uh, ingenious creations wouldn't that be more fun and that's what philosophy does it gives you permission to invent your own life absolutely it reminds me of a time i was in school neil and i would have been about maybe 14 or 15 at the time and this was it was one of the turning points for me with regard to an awareness of the control system for want of a better term yes and i was in class and it was art class and we were told to draw basically a, a Christmas time snowscape or something to do with Christmas. That was our task anyway. It was around Christmas. We mm. were sent home for the night to do that as our homework. So I came back into school the next day and everybody had their pictures of Santa Claus or whatever else. And the, some of them were amazingly artistic and they could reproduce stuff almost like a photograph. Now, I was never good at sketching, but I did enjoy the, the kind of outside of the box um, demands of art or so I thought I thought that's what art was about so I arrived in anyway with a piece of card a circular piece of card um, about A4 size and I had a slight little white triangle on it and that, that was all in, in the, at the edge of the circle and the teacher I handed it up and the teacher said well what's this and I said well it's, it's a close up of Rudolph's nose and 
as you can imagine, all hell broke loose, and there were me- meetings with the with the school uh. principal and the headmaster and all this kind of thing. And I just remember thinking, I, I was so put out. I thought I had been kind of clever with it. I thought, right, well, I'll think outside the box. That's what art is meant to yeah. do. We're not meant to be constrained by anything. But on the contrary, the control system or the school or teacher, whoever it was, really came down on me like a ton of bricks. And I saw that repeated time and time again in the following years in school and in, in life. Even when I finished school and went to college and stuff, I saw the same thing repeating over and over again. And it made me more determined to do something about it or to, I don't know, maybe maybe rewire my own way of thinking and it took one or two major incidents in my life to do that but I do it usually does it usually requires crisis to break us out of the old patterns yeah and that's exactly what happened for me and now when I look back I think so much of what came before was almost like an illusion and my, my life now is about dissolving the illusions or being able to recognize them as they come to me and to learn to dissolve them and I think your book The Unfoldment is a really good book for, I suppose, articulating that really, really well. Yeah. And it really articulated it for me and what the journey was about. And I could relate to so much of it. And I, I really got a sense of what it was like for you on your journey. Mm. And I, you do speak about illusions and stuff. Can you talk maybe to us a little bit about that, about kind of dissolving or shattering the illusions that exist or that society or culture has built up for us and put in our way? Yeah, um, I would say that, um, you know, nowadays most of us are familiar with the, the idea of conspiracy, conspiracy researches and theories and, and whatnot. And I think, uh, particularly for newcomers who look at this, uh, it's, a very, it's a world you get bogged down in very quickly and easily. Because there are some enormously important things to look at in there and some works and teachings and revelations about the world that we need to know. Um, but it's very much what I would consider shadow work, um, in that if you do it too long, the shadow begins to seep into you yourself. So just like anything else, you, know, you need to balance it out with light work, with work that is giving and uh, powerful and radiant and is creative and artistic and fun and excellent and amusing and gorgeous. So all these things need to be balanced, but in that shadow work, if people are uh, listening to David Icke and so on, that that kind of material, um, very important stuff there. And what people like David Icke does is he draws people's attention to the fact that there is this uh, single uh, world government that is essentially opposed to human nature. And at first, that is such a vast concept for someone to get their head around that it's much easier to say, well, you know, David Icke's a bit of a funny guy, got some issues maybe, and uh, I think he might be exaggerating matters a little. So you put the book down and do something else. But as you go on, you realize that there's something very important in that. And you go back to hundreds of years of people of saying the same thing. And then you realize for thousands of years, the same observation has been made. And what um, is happening is that there's a growing realization that this world government, which is an empire, is much better thought of as an empire, is one single thing, and it always has been. 
So that empire stretches, let's take it from recent history, although it's considered ancient history in mainstream circles. The Egyptian empire became the Roman empire, became the British empire, and that's where we're at still. America are the stormtroopers of that empire. Yeah. Italy is the religion of that empire. Germany is the economy of that empire. The city of London is the economy of that empire. Um, and it has all these facets and these regions and these different garments that it puts on throughout history. And of course, because we all have 80, 90, 100 year lifespans, if we're lucky, we, we don't really track it very well. Hmm. We don't really track it very well. And those who do track it, the historians, cave in to the peer pressure of other historians and give only one account of what's going on. And it's a fake account. A fake account of Earth history. Absolutely wrong from start to finish. It's, if you go back 400 years into our past... You can't trust anything, anything in the history books beyond that point, which, again, that's a very controversial thing to say, but I have found it increasingly to be the case, and more and more dramatically so. So although events did happen, cities were created and destroyed, wars did occur, the context of them and the timing of them, the purpose of them, the tone of them, who, what, where, when, is, is completely different to what's in the history books. And without that history, you don't really have a sense of what's going on. Mm. So we have this illusion, this delusion, that there are these nice, free democracies in the West, <laughs> Britain, Europe, America, who are attempting to make the world a better place. And then in the East, we have all these people with funny clothes, and who smell different and eat different things and have a different kind of culture, who were always fighting each other and who were like savages, really. Mm. And all these people in Africa who don't know how to look after themselves um, and all these people in South America who are just in the jungle, you know, subsisting and uh, whatever. And we have this very stylized, ridiculous view that is daily augmented on the BBC, on RTE, on CNN. Every single day, that fake view of reality, which bears no resemblance to the truth, is amplified through the television and the newspapers. And I'm uh, privileged in that I've created a situation where I have been able to travel a lot, uh, synchronistically, not with millions of dollars, but with uh, a true heart and with growth. So the universe has supported me in my travels, and I've traveled widely, particularly in the last five years. Right. And I do not see any uh, similarities between what I see with my eyes and the, the eyes that I look into of other people when I move around this planet and what is on the screen and the page in mainstream culture. It bears no resemblance. So the question is, why would that be so... Uh, different? Why would that be so artificial? Is it just because our reporters and media people are stupid and don't know how to depict a thing? Or is there something else going on? And that uh, question has to be answered by the individual. I would propose to people that there is something else going on, which is 
television and the newspapers, the print, the printing press, have been sequestered to uh, be put in the hands of just like two or three organisations, which you know look on uh, the internet, look at the look at the current state of the movie and the newspaper and the media industry, and there's just a handful of organisations who own the lot. Yeah. So those people could very easily all sit in one room and decide what to do and what to put forward, what to raise up the headlines and what to put down the headlines very easily. And they do. That's exactly what they do. They regularly meet in private, although it's not that private because we know about it, but they regularly meet confidentially to discuss these things. And you get the sense that one of the greatest manipulations, very subtle it is, is that the other people who attend that meeting uh, from organizations we call think tanks are shaping culture by proposing ideas to people through the media, largely through fiction, through the movie industry. Mm. So those organizations are saying, we want to introduce the, the idea of cataclysm to people of earth-changing events through natural disasters. So we want 10 years, please, from 2005 to 2015 of that. We want that thrust in people's faces. And then that's exactly what happens over and over and over again. So these things don't organically <coughs> occur. There's not an editor sat there thinking, well, what are the most important things going on in our state, in our country. Nobody's doing that. They're told what to yank up the top of that thing. And they're told through policy and they're told through fashion of news. So what, who decides what's important? You know, why is it that the, the news every day is full of essentially war and sport and entertainment? Because I don't think that those constitute a very full picture of human life, of what's actually going on. I don't think those things describe it well at all. Sport, a lot of fun, but irrelevant. Entertainment, a lot of fun, but irrelevant. War, you're looking at a situation where things have already gone very badly wrong. What about everything else? Where is everything else? Where is human beings? Where is human life? Where is philosophy and psychology? Where are those things in the news? Where, where is the real human story of what people do and what they create and what they fabricate and what they fashion and what they harness? You know, where is that? There's none of that in the news, none at all. So the news pre presents a picture to human society to say, look, we're basically wrong. All, all we do is we grasp things as quickly as we can. And when that goes wrong, we fight other people for their stuff. And that's what humans do, and we're not very good. And again, that presents a negative picture to people to say, well, the world is broken, and there's nothing you can do about it. So get some nice stuff, get a nice place to enjoy it in, and just keep your mouth shut. <laughs> so that's what the television is instructing people to do every day, particularly RTE and BBC, particularly because they are issuing um, a set of proposals and ideas based not on their own editorial policies, but on think tank uh, constructs, 
which is to say this is what we want the people concentrating on and this is what we don't we do not want the people concentrating on and that sort of manipulation is rife so in my book the unfoldment i describe how that works and how to disinfect yourself how to inoculate yourself against it yeah. which of course one simple thing you do you get rid of your uh live broadcast television if you want a big screen fine whatever enjoy that you know it's nice to watch what you want to watch but don't watch live broadcast television do not watch live broadcast television it does something to you even if it's a lovely nature program don't watch it can you uh, can you expand on that a little bit neil in terms of well, the, the live the live broadcast versus say pre-recorded or something like that well it, it's kind of like a little bit esoteric this but um if you create let's say your um a violent aggressive abusive man mm. but you have a great talent for art right and you get your paintbrush and your oil paints and you go out and you paint this fantastic picture. Yeah. Your violence and your aggression and your exploitative mental nature are in that painting, right? Mm. So everything that you do, your conscious signature is embedded within the product that you create, whether it's a dream or a thought or a painting or a document or a television program or a piece of music or a, a ceramic, you know, ve uh, vase, I was going to say vase then, <laughs> vase, yeah. whatever you do, um, it's embedded within that thing. So it's a, it's, it's a little bit like saying, you know, it, 20 years ago, nobody gave a monkeys about eating, you know, battery farmed chickens, did they? You got a chicken, it was cheap. No one cared that it was in a cage. You just ate it. Nowadays, people are onto the idea that a happy chicken means good food, right? And an unhappy chicken means bad food. And there's some sort of energetic signature in that animal that translates to its very flesh. And I think people understand that now. Yeah. There's no difference, none at all, between that and the television. None at all. So when it comes through a conduit that is harnessed by an organization who oppose human nature, mm -hmm. everything that goes through that conduit is tainted with that energy signature. So this is a little bit esoteric, I appreciate that. But to me, uh, it's, ab it's absolutely no different than if you were saying, well, if I'm going to drink uh, water... What I really want is, you know, crystal clear, uh, naturally filtered mountain stream water. We have one of those near us. It's absolutely the best water you've ever tasted. Yeah. And then when you go back and have tap water, even though ours is not fluoridated, which is fantastic here in Portland, yeah, Oregon. Look at you. It, it, it doesn't, I know, it doesn't taste the same. It's different. And you start to realize that once you're exposed to impurity for a long time, you become immune to it. So it's like a, a very long story, very short. A normal guy who, who I came across on my travels he used to watch all the television, all the shows, all the cop shows, all the crime shows, loved all that stuff. Um, and then for whatever reason, they didn't have a TV for a year. He came back to it and he was horrified, horrified by the level of violence 
that was on the television because in that interim period of not having one, he'd resensitized himself yeah. to human nature. And then when he saw the level of depravity and perversion on the screen, I mean, he was a, he's a broad-minded guy like me. You know, he's seen a lot of stuff in the world. He's not like just some little cotton wool adventurer. He'd really seen some things, but his mind had resensitized to it. And he said, you know what? He said, I'm, I'm going to get rid of it again because I don't see what I'm gaining by watching and doing this. I don't want to do it. And there's, there's something he said, and he, he doesn't, we don't talk about the same issues um, that I usually do with people. He's, a, you know, he's not in that sphere for his own choices. But he said, there's something in the live broadcast. There's something in the live broadcast. I can feel it. And I said, I think you're right. I said, we won't go into that right now, but I, you are right. So if you do like your nature programs or your you know, art history programs or whatever, two things that I like, for example, I'll get it on disk or you know, as computer files that somebody gives me or whatever on a hard drive, yeah. and that's how I'll watch them. But watching live broadcast is a very peculiar thing that has an effect on one's mind and I would say it's not very good <laughs> well what you say makes makes a lot of sense because um, on, on last week's Alchemy Radio David Icke was on speaking about uh, energies yes. and energetic fields and one thing that he mentioned that has just sprung to mind um, as you were speaking Neil is that around the time of 9-11 all the, the, the instrumentation that's used to I suppose, track and graph electromagnetic frequencies and the, the vibrational field of the earth. There was a spike on 9-11 because so many people were affected through the media because, let's face it, most people weren't in New York on that day, yet oh. the whole world was massively affected by the events that happened, relayed through the media. And I think what you've described is, is pretty much exactly the same thing. So uh, it, to, to me, it makes total sense, and I think it will to a lot of people. I know sometimes when I watch, um, you mentioned RTE a couple of times, which is the state broadcaster here in Ireland. And quite often when I'd watch a live broadcast, I don't actually have a TV myself, but if I'm in somebody else's house and it's on or whatever. Yeah, sure. Um, yeah. I feel quite uncomfortable. And I think it's because I haven't been exposed. Growing up, I never had any problem with television. And it it was always, I don't know, a means of escapism. And it was just watched because everybody watched it. But the less I've been exposed to TV over the last five or six years, the more I've noticed that when I am plonked in front of it, the more agitated I get. There's, there's just, there's a sense that something doesn't feel exactly right. And there, there is, there is. It, 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 it's almost like um, I'll, I'll tell you a very clear example of it, which is, which is as an esoteric root, but as a very uh, simple, solid, concrete uh, demonstration in reality. Mm. In English television, British television, if you watch a show, let's say a nature show or a cooking show, you know, well, that's pretty harmless, you know, what's, what's the problem with that? Or a soap opera or something. Well, I don't know, that's pretty dangerous, actually. <laughs> Let, let's stick with a cooking program, right? Yeah. So I'm, I'm watching, you know, Hugh Fernley Whittingstall in, in his real cottage in England, doing some stuff, you know, rearing animals naturally, t telling us about how to properly grow tomatoes and potatoes and whatnot. And I can enjoy that for half an hour, really enjoy that. In the States, I've been here for a few years now. I live here, I love it, it's fantastic. But the television here is unwatchable for one major reason, in that they cut every scene, every camera angle, every 
second or two. So the, the camera doesn't stay in one position on one subject for more than a couple of seconds. And if you just sit back and just kind of blur your eyes and don't focus on what you're looking at, just the actual cutting, you know what I mean, the editing, yeah. you realize that it's slicing every single shot. You know, they won't just have a camera on a, a pan of, you know, f- frying potatoes. They'll have like, they go, different angle, guy's face, pan, different angle, round the other side of the kitchen, blur, zoom in, zoom out, pan left, zoom out. And it's 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 destroying, destroying the mind's ability to focus because that is programming the mind to say, don't focus on anything, we'll show you what to do. Don't you decide what to look at and how to consider it. You don't have time. We'll cut it so fast that the narrative isn't delivered by you in your own contemplation. Mm. We'll deliver it to you. So if you don't allow somebody to stand still long enough they can't formulate their own thoughts. What they'll do is accept what you tell them. And that's what's happening on television. So it's not the content as such. It's the style that producers and uh, funders demand, which is very fast cutting. And nearly every single program, like I, I went to get the car service the other day. This is the only time I see television apart from hotels. Yeah. And they had a little waiting room there. And he said, oh, yeah, it'll just be, uh, you know, 45 minutes, Mr. Mr. Kramer. Just have a coffee in our waiting room. I said, oh, great, yeah, all right. So I went and sat in there, and they had this show on. And there was no one else in there, and I had the remote, and it was awful, so I turned it over. And I must have flipped through, seriously, at least 200 channels over that time as an experiment. And not one of them had the camera resting on a particular subject matter, a particular scene, object, person, uh, camera angle for more than about two seconds and that destroys the brain's ability to concentrate yeah so watching television physically physically changes your brain structure because as you stop using those neural pathways energetically and chemically they atrophy so when you watch television it's physically restructuring your brain's ability to function so for anybody who's listening to us now, Neil, and they're thinking, well, what, what are the lads talking about? For God's sake, I love watching a bit of television <laughs> and I love the X Factor. Whatever it might be, a football match, I can't just go out into Tibet on the back of a horse or a donkey <laughs> and throw my whole life away. Surely there must be some Well, you, steps. Could, you could do. Well, you, you could, could do, do, of course, and, <clears throat> and lots of people do. do. It, it might not be very very nice for other people yeah i think so and it might be a shock to the system too far for a lot of people but (laughs) for for the same johnny and mary who are sitting listening to us now and they're thinking that but they may also be thinking well surely there are some practical steps that i can begin my journey with what advice would you have for them neil um i would i would straight off the bat say treat media like you treat food in that the more you consider carefully the nature of the relationship between the food you put in your body and your well-being, the better, right? So we all know that now. So if you eat properly and you consider what it is, what is the the vegetables and the proteins and the carbohydrates and where do they come from, those vegetables and that pork and that, uh, you know, ham or whatever, where do they come from? What, what is that? Where are they, where are they traveling from and how were they grown? So we, we're on to the idea now that 
what we put in our mouths at breakfast and lunch and dinner and whatnot affects not only your physical health and your weight and your metabolism and your, um, your f- the chemical functions of your body, but also your mind, the structure of your brain, mm. the maintenance of your brain, and your emotional well-being, you know, your serotonin and dopamine and all these extraordinary chemicals that flow around our body are largely fed and fueled by the, the medicine and the fuel and the compounds that we put into our body. So treating uh, vegetables as medicine is quite an interesting thought because your body might be trying to fix something and it's saying, look, we need this, this, this and this to fix that little problem. And you don't. All you keep doing is having a hamburger and fries. It's saying, well, we can't fix it if you don't give us the proper chemicals and components. So we've started to be cleverer now, and people are starting to live longer now. Old people are living a lot longer. Animals are living a lot longer. Cats and dogs now live, I think it's 30% longer than they did 20 years ago, because we're actually feeding them properly now, right? Now, if you do a little switch energetically, philosophically, to say, consider media as exactly the same thing in that what you put into your brain has a profound effect on your entire well-being, on your entire body. There's no such thing as harmless television. There's no such thing as just a bit of fun. Well, it's only the X Factor. It's only Britain's Got Talent. It's only... Coronation Street. There's no such thing as that. When you put something in your mind, it is embedded, enmeshed, burned in permanently. And so, are you going to put in trash or are you going to put in beauty? Are you going to put in substance? Are you going to put in nonsense? Do you know what I mean? So, we all like a bit of humor and comedy and action movies. Uh, you know, I'll watch old Steven Seagal movies until I fall asleep. Not the best thing in the world. We all have our vices. Yeah, I won't pass However, judgment there. <laughs> <laughs> I know, it's, it's a shocking that. I've just lost, the, just lost half the listenership now. But um, we all have our vices, whatever it is. You know, some of my friends are mad Manchester United, Manchester City, Liverpool fans, whatever. And there's mm-hmm. nothing that's ever going to change that. No problem. We all like a bit of entertainment and a bit of rest and relaxation. But in terms of your staple diet, what you're doing most of the time with your media, what are you reading? Are you just buying the newspaper kind of because someone else once did? Are you just watching television while you eat your dinner because kind of that's just something that people do? If you think about it and if you consider that the ideas and images and sounds and textures that you put into your brain are actually creating a reality for you, then you become more selective in it. Because if, if your entire mind is filled with somebody else's reality, you don't have a reality. You're just a bit part character. You're just doing a cameo role in someone else's reality. So the, the little phrase that I use for that is if you're not creating your own reality, then somebody else is. Somebody else is doing it for you. And no greater way is that determined and demonstrated than by people who watch a lot of television they're living in someone else's reality it reminds me a little bit of the quote by Kurt Cobain the lead singer of Nirvana uh, wanting to be somebody else is a waste of the person that you are 
and it's something that exactly. always it always stuck with me. Um, so many people tend to live their lives vicariously through celebrities or somebody else or television shows, whatever it they, might be. They do, they do, and that that vicariousness um, is is fashionable. You know, to the the epitome mm. of that, of course, is reality TV, where they don't so much do this anymore. But a few years ago, you know, you'd have Big Brother, and they'd have these streams on television. My girlfriend at the time uh, used to watch them, where it would just be people sat in the house, going to the toilet, eating the dinner, lay on a sofa, reading a magazine, and that was it. Yeah. You were just watching someone else's normal, mundane, day-to-day stuff. And what I'm saying is that not in an intellectual capacity or uh, a quality capacity, but in an actual physical capacity as a human being, as a uh, you know, sovereign excellent, amazing, natural soul on this planet, that is cut in half. That is cut in half if you fill your head with the images of other people because the images in your head actually generate the reality around you. They actually generate it. I mean, that's a big whole story and show in itself. But if you just consider that for a moment, don't think yes or no, just let's imagine that that was the case, that what was in your head generated the world around you. If your head is full of excellent, amazing, strong, genius things that you have chosen to create, to imbibe, to share, to transmit, to learn, to teach, all those things, then that is going to have an effect on your day-to-day existence and your level of happiness and your level of fulfillment, the kind of relationships you have with people, what money you have in the bank, your level of health, everything. It's going to affect everything. So we're not saying um, that reality is completely illusory. It has a reality here, but it's only one single layer of it, one single story of it. Uh, The truth is that reality is very multidimensional. There are many tunnels into it, and we each create one of those tunnels. So when there's a great consensus of reality tunnels, that becomes the presiding reality. So if you persuade 7 billion people to think that you live for 80 years, people will live 80 years. If you persuade 7 billion people that you live for 1,000 years you live for a thousand years. So what somebody believes in terms of the day-to-day lived experiential reality shapes the world around us because consciousness is the thing, the sort of uh, software that makes it all work. Consciousness is the, the juice, the energy, the programming language that makes this function, that tells it what to do. Yeah. So that consciousness, we, if we want to, can contribute and participate in how this is constructed. If you don't, then you don't contribute. You just, you just experience what other people are creating. So our role as the author of this universal software is very little understood, and it's one of the things I try to bring out in my work and teach people how they can author their own existence by channeling better, greater, truer levels of consciousness in their own life. And it's such valuable work as well, because I think even if people can only take one little piece of information from our conversation, it's that things are not as they necessarily seem. And they're certainly not the way 
that the powers that be want us to see. And I think once people begin to question the journey, well, certainly for me, I can only speak for myself, but the, the minute I began to question, my journey began, in a sense, away from that control system. And the journey never ends, and I don't anticipate that it ever will. It, but- it does, and you might agree with me on this one, that initially, when you get the sense that things aren't the way that they t- you've been told, and that some of those governments are not your friend, and some of those powers are not quite what you thought they were mm. it is very unsettling it can be something oh, that creates this this thing we call cognitive dissonance this you've, you've held a belief for so long and suddenly it's turned upside down it's very unsettling and the impulse for a lot of people is to just think no that can't be true <laughs> that's just crazy conspiracy funny crackpot stuff no that can't be true yeah. that's 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 what happens when you're afraid that the rug is going to be pulled out from under your feet but I don't know if you'll agree with me on this one, that if you push through that, it starts to turn the other way. And that suddenly, life begins to make a lot more sense. And you start to go, oh, that's why that's the way it is. That's yeah, why yeah. that happens in the Middle East. That's why that's happening in Syria and Israel and America and Britain. That's why these things are happening in Dublin with the economy. Right, we understand... Ah, right, I get it now. That makes perfect sense. I understand it. And then you go to the next layer, and the real journey is not just explaining the nuts and bolts and Mm. the 3D stuff, but there's an even greater world out there, a greater dimension with all different orders of magnitude and beings from all different parts of the universe. And there's this extraordinary, extraordinary, massive, multidimensional world which we have a very, very important part to play in. And suddenly, as we started off with the conversation, you get this little scent, this taste on your tongue of adventure. And you think, maybe this is an adventure. Maybe this does have a magical element. Maybe there is something sacred about it and something good going on here. And that suddenly starts to take hold of you. And then what was a very unsettling, discomforting realization becomes... A revelation, an epiphany, and it gives you an opportunity to permit yourself to start a new perspective in your life, a truer one, where you take yourself seriously as an important entity in the world, not in an arrogant way, not in a vain way, but in terms of your own esteem of yourself, your own worth as a being in the universe. And as I said, when you do that, when you take account of yourself properly, the universe sees you. And if you like, let's use the word, God notices you. Yeah. He says, oh, hang on a second. One of these little guys has woken up. Hello. And suddenly, you can then begin to have a relationship with that divine emanation. And that is a very, very beautiful, sublime experience that completely detonates any fears and any nonsense about the control system. So if you stick with it, push through those antagonistic forces and that sense of unsettlement, suddenly you start to shift gears and something of valour, shall we say, an old-fashioned word, that valour arises within you and you have this courage that you didn't know you had and you begin to tread a different path in life that is not just put for, forward for you do this do that go here go there and maybe this will happen maybe that'll happen and maybe it won't that nonsense stops 
And every single step you take, every single step is yours, absolutely yours to own. And you can do whatever you want with it. And that, that's the power that I'm talking about, the power to create your own life. And it's an absolutely magical journey. I'm, I'm early days on mine. I'm not as far advanced as you are, but we, we've got our whole lives to do it and we can make what there's, we there's want. No, there's lives. no rush. We can go at whatever pace we want. The key thing is to realize it, to embrace it. So wherever we are on it, and we're all in different places and we never really truly know where anyone else is. Yeah. But if we know ourselves that we've started that journey and it is a, a kind of pilgrimage, as our Christian ancestors would call it. Mm. It is marvelous, absolutely marvelous. And it's natural. It's the natural human impulse. We're not here to work. That's, not, that's irrelevant. Nobody's here to work. Nobody wants jobs. What we want is discovery, life, sharing, music, art, human culture, real food, real communities, real people. And those things come as a byproduct of this path and we generate it we can't expect anyone else to do it for us we have to do it for ourselves and that is the key to it it's about self-empowerment and i suppose awakening your own unfoldment to get back to the book so yeah, sure. um, how can people get the book or more information because i know there'll be many chomping at the bit to start to explore their own their own path <clears throat> well you can go to neilkramer.com which presumably you'll be able to put a link up on your uh, website. Absolutely, but yeah. NeilKramer.com is my website, and you can see loads of essays and interviews and stuff on there. You know, hundreds of hours of material all in all. Uh, there's also uh, my book there, The Unfoldment. You can buy that. It links to, like, you know, various different distributors like Amazon and Barnes and Noble and Borders and Blacks, whoever. Yeah. Most of the major people that you would ordinarily buy books from will carry it. It doesn't really matter to me where you buy it from. It's all kind of the same. But I think most people who have ever come back to me and said, I've read your book, enjoyed it, really enjoyed it, because it really is written from the heart. You know, it really, really, truly is. It's not just a hobby. It's not just something that I think is interesting. It's not just a bit of research. It's something I passionately live and breathe every day and believe in. And it is our uh, birthright, if you like. It is our great virtue and our great um, power, this Im immense spiritual, metaphysical, mystical adventure of life. And essentially all authors who talk about these matters are trying to always explain something very ancient, some old wisdom, but in a new context. And in that sense, my book is no different. We're talking about very ancient principles, particularly if you're English or Irish, there are many resonances for those two lands in here yeah. for our, our deep spiritual heritage. So neilkramer.com, you can find out everything you need to get there. So the book is The Unfoldment. There are workshops you can download. There's an audio book you can download and um, you can find everything there. Well, I highly recommend the book. As I said at the beginning of the show, I've read it multiple times and will read it multiple more times. Neil, I have the power. You have the power. We have the power. It's been a huge pleasure having you on Alchemy Radio. I look forward to our next conversation and thank you for joining me this week. Thank you. It's been my pleasure. Alchemy Radio. Alchemy Radio. Alchemy Radio. Alchemy Radio.
hope you've enjoyed this week's episode of Alchemy Radio. Remember, we rely on donations to keep the show in its current free and ad-free format and are extremely grateful for all the help you can offer. As I said earlier, we put no fixed cost on your donations and every little helps. So if you could spare us even the price of a cup of coffee every month, it would go a long way towards keeping us afloat and helping us to secure that vital bandwidth so we can continue uninterrupted listening. Our donate button is on the website and your support and assistance is hugely appreciated. Thank you this week to Stephanie Sprague for your help and support. Our next guest is Chris Spivey talking about the British royal family, the Woolwich incident, the Boston bombings and lots, lots more. So until then, I have the power, you have the power, we have the power. Alchemy Radio. Alchemy Radio. Analyze. Alchemy Radio. Conceive. Alchemy Radio. Believe. Are you tuned in? Are you tuned in?